Part One of A Journal of Impressions in Belgium. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. A Journal of Impressions in Belgium by May Sinclair. Part One Dedication to a field ambulance in flanders i do not call you comrades you who did what i only dreamed though you have taken my dream and dressed yourselves in its beauty and its glory your faces are turned aside as you pass by i am nothing to you for i have done no more than dream your faces are like the face of her whom you follow danger the beloved who looks backward as she runs calling to her lovers the huntress who flies before her quarry trailing her lure she called to me from her battle-places she flung before me the curved lightning of her shells for a lure and when i came within sight of her she turned aside and hid her face from me but you she loved you she touched with her hand for you the white flames of her feet stayed in their running she kept you with her in her fields of flanders where you go gathering your wounded from among her dead grey night falls on your going and black night on your returning you go under the thunder of the guns the shrapnel's rain and the curved lightning of the shells and where the high towers are broken and houses crack like the staves of a thin crate filled with fire into the mixing smoke and dust of roof and walls torn asunder you go and only my dream follows you that is why i do not speak of you calling you by your names your names are strung with the names of ruined and immortal cities tormund and antwerp dixmude and ypres and fern like jewels on one chain thus in the high places of heaven they shall tell all your names may sinclair march eighth nineteen fifteen introduction this is a journal of impressions and it is nothing more it will not satisfy people who want accurate and substantial information about belgium or about the war or about field ambulances and hospital work and do not want to see any of these things across a temperament for the solid facts and the great events they must go to such books as mr e a powell's fighting in flanders or mr frank fox's the agony of belgium or mr h s sutars a surgeon in belgium or a woman's experiences in the great war by louise mack for many of these impressions i can claim only a psychological accuracy some were insubstantial to the last degree and very few were actually set down there and then on the spot as i have set them down here this is only a journal in so far as it is a record of days as faithful as i could make it in every detail and as direct as circumstances allowed but circumstances seldom did allow and i was always behindhand with my journal a week behind with the first day of the seventeen four months behind with the last this was inevitable for in the last week of the siege of antwerp when the wounded were being brought into ghent by hundreds and when the fighting came closer and closer to the city and at the end when the germans were driving you from ghent to bruges and from bruges to ostend and from ostend to dunkirk you could not sit down to write your impressions even if you were cold-blooded enough to want to 
it was as much as you could do to scribble the merest note of what happened in your day-book but when you had made fast each day with its note your impressions were safe far safer than if you had tried to record them in their flux as they came however far behind i might be with my journal it was kept it is not written up or round and about the original notes in my day-book it is simply written out each day of the seventeen had its own quality and was soaked in its own atmosphere each had its own unique and incorruptible memory and the slight lapse of time so far from dulling or blurring that memory crystallized it and made it sharp and clean and in writing out i have been careful never to go behind or beyond the day never to add anything but to leave each moment as it was i have set down the day's imperfect or absurd impression in all its imperfection or absurdity and the day's crude emotion in all its crudity rather than taint its reality with the discreet reflections that came after i make no apology for my many errors where they were discoverable i have corrected them in a footnote to this day i do not know how wildly wrong i may have been about kilometres and the points of the compass and the positions of batteries and the movements of armies but there were other things of which i was dead sure and this record has at least the value of a human document there is one question that i may be asked why when you had the luck to go out with a field ambulance corps distinguished by its gallantry why in heaven's name have you not told the story of its heroism well i have not told it for several excellent reasons when i set out to keep a journal i pledged myself to set down only what i had seen or felt and to avoid as far as possible the second hand and it was my misfortune that i saw very little of the field work of the corps besides the corps itself was then in its infancy and it is its infancy its irrepressible half irresponsible whole engaging infancy that i have touched here after those seventeen days at ghent it grew up in all conscience it was at furn and dixmude and la panne after i had left it that its most memorable deeds were done and this story of the corps is not mine to tell part of it has been told already by dr soutar and part by mr philip gibbs and others the rest is yet to come m s july fifteenth nineteen fifteen a journal of impressions in belgium september twenty fifth nineteen fourteen after the painful births and deaths of i don't know how many committees after six weeks struggling with something we imagined to be red tape which proved to be the combined egoism of several persons all desperately anxious to get to the front and desperately afraid of somebody else getting there too and getting there first we are actually off impossible to describe the mysterious processes by which we managed it i think the war office kicked us out twice and the admiralty once though what we were doing with the admiralty i don't to this day understand the british red cross kicked us steadily all the time on general principles the americans snubbed us rather badly what the french said to us i don't remember and i can't think that we carried persistency so far as to apply to the russian and the japanese many of our scheme perished in their own vagueness others vivid and adventurous were checked by the first encounter with the crass reality at one time i remember we were to have sent out a detachment of stalwart amazons 
in khaki breeches, who were to dash out onto the battlefield, reconnoitre and pick up the wounded, and carry them away slung over their saddles. The only difficulty was to get the horses. But the author of the scheme, who had bought her breeches, had allowed for that. The horses were to be caught on the battlefield. As the wounded and dead dropped from their saddles, the Amazons were to leap into them and ride off. On this system, remounts were also to be supplied. Whenever a horse was shot dead under its rider, an Amazon was to dash up with another whose rider had been shot dead. It was all perfectly simple and only needed a little organization. For four weeks, the lure of the battlefield kept our volunteers dancing round the war office and the Red Cross societies, and for four weeks their progress to the front was frustrated by Lord Kitchener. Some dropped off disheartened, but others came on, and a regenerated committee dealt with them. Finally, the thing crystallized into a motor ambulance corps. An awful sanity came over the committee, chastened by its sufferings, and the volunteers under pressure definitely renounced the battlefield. Then somebody said, let's help the Belgian refugees. From that moment, our course was clear. Everybody was perfectly willing that we should help the refugees, provided we relinquished all claim on the wounded. The Belgian legation was enchanted. It gave passports to a small private commission of inquiry under our commandant to go out to Belgium and send in a report. At Ostend, the commission of inquiry whittled itself down to the one energetic person who had taken it out. And before we knew where we were, our ambulance corps was accepted by the Belgian Red Cross. Only we had not got the ambulances. And though we had got some money, we had not got enough. This was really our good luck for it saved us from buying the wrong kind of motor ambulance car. But at first the blow staggered us. Then, by some abrupt, incalculable turn of destiny, the British Red Cross, which had kicked us so persistently, came to our help and gave us all the ambulances we wanted. And we are off. There are thirteen of us, the commandant and Dr. Haynes and Dr. Bird under him, and Mrs. Torrance, a trained nurse and midwife, who can drive a motor-car through anything and take it to bits and put it together again. Janet McNeil, also an expert motorist, and Ursula Deermer and Mrs. Lambert, Red Cross emergency nurses, Mr. Grierson, Mr. Foster, and Mr. Riley, stretcher-bearers, and two chauffeurs and me. I don't know where I come in, but they've called me the secretary and reporter, which sounds very fine, and I am to keep the accounts, heaven help them, and write the commandant's reports, and toss off articles for the daily papers to make a little money for the corps. We've got some already, raised by the commandant's report and appeal that we published in the Daily Telegraph and Daily Chronicle. I shall never forget how I sprinted down Fleet Street to get it in in time four days before we started. And we have landed at Ostend. I'll confess now that I dreaded Ostend more than anything. We had been told that there were horrors upon horrors in Ostend. Children were being born in the streets, and the state of the bathing machines where the refugees lived was unspeakable. I imagined the streets of Ostend crowded with refugee women bearing children, and the Digue covered with the horrific bathing machines. On the other hand, Ostend was said to be the safest spot in Europe. No Germans there, no Zeppelins, no bombs. And we found the bathing machines planted out several miles from the town, almost invisible specks on a vanishing shoreline. The refugees we met walking about the streets of Ostend were in fairly good case and bore themselves bravely. 
but the town had been bombarded the night before and our hotel had been the subject of very special attentions we chose it the terminus because it lay close to the landing stage and saved us the trouble of going into the town to look for quarters it was under the same roof as the railway station where we proposed to leave our ambulance cars and heavy luggage and we had no difficulty whatever in getting rooms for the whole thirteen of us there was no sort of competition for rooms in that hotel i said to myself if ostend ever is bombarded this railway station will be the first to suffer and the hotel and the railway station are one and when i was shown into a bedroom with glass windows all along its inner wall and a fine glass front looking out onto the platforms under the immense glass roof of the station i said if this hotel is ever bombarded what fun it will be for the person who sleeps in this bed between these glass windows we were all rather tired and hungry as we met for dinner at seven o'clock and when we were told that all lights would be put out in the town at eight thirty we only thought that a municipality which was receiving all the refugees in belgium must practice some economy and that anyway an hour and a half was enough for anyone to dine in and we hoped that the commandant who had gone to call on the english chaplain at the grand hotel littoral would find his way back again to the peaceful and commodious shelter of the terminus he did find his way back at seven thirty just in time to give us a chance of clearing out if we chose to take it the english chaplain it seemed was surprised and dismayed at our idea of a suitable hotel and he implored us to fly instantly before a bomb burst in among us this was the first we had heard of the bombardment of the night before the commandant put it to us as we sat there whether we would leave that dining-room at once and pack our baggage all over again and bundle out and go hunting for rooms all through ostend with the lights out and perhaps fall into the harbour or stay where we were and risk the off chance of a bomb and we were all very tired and hungry and we had only got to the soup and we had seen and smelt the harbour so we said we'd stay where we were and risk it and we stayed a taube hovered over us and never dropped its bomb saturday twenty sixth when we compared notes the next morning we found that we had all gone soundly to sleep too tired to take the taube seriously all except our two chauffeurs who were downright annoyed because no bomb had entered their bedroom then we all went out and looked at the little hole in the roof of the fish market and the big hole in the hotel garden and thought of bombs as curious natural phenomena that never had and never would have any intimate connection with us and for five weeks ever since i knew that i must certainly go out with this expedition i had been living in black funk in shameful and appalling terror every night before i went to sleep i saw an interminable spectacle of horrors trunks without heads heads without trunks limbs tangled in intestines corpses by every roadside murders mutilations my friends shot dead before my eyes nothing i shall ever see will be more ghastly than the things i have seen and yet before a possibly to be bombarded ostend this strange visualizing process ceases and i see nothing and feel nothing absolutely nothing until suddenly the commandant announces that he is going into the town by himself to buy a hat and i get my first experience of real terror for the hats that the commandant buys when he is by himself there are no words for them this morning the corps begins to realize its need of discipline 
First of all, our chauffeurs have disappeared and can nowhere be found. The motor ambulances languish in inactivity on Cockrell's Wharf. We find one chauffeur and set him to keep guard over a tin of petrol. We know the ambulances can't start till heaven knows when, and so first Mrs. Lambert, our emergency nurse, then, I regret to say, our secretary and reporter make off and sneak into the cathedral. We are only ten minutes, but still we are away, and Mrs. Torrance, our trained nurse, is ready for us when we come back. We are accused bitterly of sightseeing. We had betrayed the inherent levity of our nature the day before on the boat when we looked at the sunset. Then the secretary and reporter, utterly intractable, wanders forth ostensibly to look for the commandant, who has disappeared but really to get a sight of the motor ambulances on Cockrell's Wharf. And Mrs. Torrance is ready again for the secretary, convicted now of sightseeing. And I have seen no commandant, and no motor ambulances, and no wharf. Unbearable thought that I may never, absolutely never, see Cockrell's Wharf. It is really awful this time, because the president of the Belgian Red Cross is waiting to get the thirteen of us to the town hall to have our passports visa, and the commandant is rounding up his corps, and Ursula Dearmer is heaven knows where, and Mrs. Lambert only somewhere in the middle distance, and Mrs. Torrance's beautiful eyes are blazing at the slip-sloppiness of it all. Things were very different at the blank hospital where she was trained only the president remains imperturbable for after all this fuming and fretting the president isn't quite ready himself or perhaps the town hall isn't ready and we all stroll about the streets of ostend for half an hour and the commandant goes off by himself to buy that hat it is a terrible half hour but after all he comes back without it judging it better to bear the ills he has very leisurely and with an immense consumption of time we stroll and get photographed for our passports then on to the town hall and then to the military depot for our laissez-passer and then to the hotel terminus for lunch and at one thirty we are off end of part one recording by expatriate in bangor maine